Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. The following podcast contains subject matter that may not be suitable for all listeners. This episode has been updated to correct statements made by one of our subjects in reference to the case of John Wall that were erroneous. Is it possible to discuss blood spatter or blood stains without interpreting what you think and give an opinion based only on science? Well, no. I'm talking to scientist Anita Zanin about the field of blood pattern analysis. There is subjectivity in blood stain pattern analysis, but our opinions are based on science. We shouldn't be saying things that we can't give a scientific explanation for. But that certainly can happen. Do you think that in certain cases our justice system is convicting innocent people based on faulty expert testimony? Yes, I do. As well as acquittals on faulty expert testimony. I think it happens on both sides. I looked him dead in the eye and I said, your expert's wrong, you need to get another expert. You have these sciences that are labeled forensic science, but they're theories, they're myths. The trial is dog and pony show. All these people heard was lies. I was horrified. There's nothing a judge can do. There are no standards. There are no qualifications. There is no oversight. Simply because somebody is accepted as an expert doesn't necessarily mean that they know what they're talking about. From Discovery Plus, ID and Joke Productions, this is Unraveled, Experts on Trial a seven-part series that investigates a crisis in the American court system that will leave you hoping you're never accused of a crime that an expert says you committed. 
The ordeal of David Cam is, in retrospect, somewhat easy to understand. Small town Indiana police give too much weight to the testimony of a blood expert and end up convinced of an innocent man's guilt. What we want to know is, is David Cam's conviction merely a tragic case of extraordinary bad luck? Or instead, as he alleges, is this problem much more rampant than we realize? A microcosm of a far-reaching crisis in our justice system. It's that question that led us to examine the murder trial of a man named John Wall, a truly bizarre story, and another one where blood plays a pivotal role. September 2011, Salt Lake City, Utah. A 911 call comes in a dispatch from the boyfriend of a local cancer researcher named Uta von Schwedler. I just came over, I couldn't find my girlfriend. I came over and the water was running and she's in the bathtub and she's, she's, she's drowned, she's dead. When Udo's boyfriend called 911, how did he sound? Very distraught, very, very distraught. He reported the dispatcher that he had entered the house and found his girlfriend dead in the bathtub. Homicide detective Corden Parks remembers the day clearly. He was one of the very first people to arrive on scene. We entered the back door by the driveway. We looked in her bedroom, and the bedroom was somewhat in disarray. Some objects had been knocked over, and there were blood stains on the sheets. In the bathroom, we found the deceased in the bathtub. As far as blood stains, were there any in the bathroom? Yes, there was what appeared to be a bloody palm print on the tile above the bathtub. And there was a, a blood smear on the side of the sink. So what's next then from an investigative standpoint? Well, the issue is, is did she commit suicide or was she, was she murdered? That's the issue right away. Despite all the blood, the answer to that question is immediately unclear. Uta von Schwedler lay in the bathtub wearing only a pair of shorts. An old photo album and a magazine are scattered beside her on the wet floor. Underneath her body is a large kitchen knife. To find a, a knife in the bathtub with her would, would be an indicator of suicide. But it was confusing. The evidence there is confusing. I think it was a AAA magazine. Why would she have that in the bathtub with her if she were committing suicide? Why would she take off her tank top, fold it neatly, and lay it on the side of the tub? Also, what was really suspicious about the water is that it was cold. Her boyfriend remembered distinctly that he turned off only the cold water when he entered and, and found Uda. I've never known anybody who committed suicide in a tub of cold water. That was absolutely suspicious and very, very concerning. Does she have any visible injuries? that can be seen? Well, she had a number of injuries. She had these very shallow uh, knife wounds on her lower left leg. They were puzzling. And also there was a very, very shallow, shallow knife wound on her left forearm where a knife tip had just barely punctured the surface there. Then she had something else that was very uh, suspicious and that is she had bruising on her lower lip on the outside, a quite visible contusion. What was the gut instinct as far as what you're dealing with? It's more uh, 
consistent with homicide than it is accident or suicide. But we weren't into making a judgment that night. We were going to collect everything and then look at the autopsy evidence. The autopsy would be uh, pretty much everything in this case. When the autopsy results come in, Detective Parks expects them to confirm his hunch of foul play. But instead, the results only add to the confusion. The medical examiner indicated that the immediate cause of death was drowning in the bathtub, but he found that he could not determine a manner of death. He thought it possibly could have been a suicide with some accidental injuries inflicted, like the uh, contusion on her lips. That could have been a fall in the bathtub. So he could not determine a manner of death. As far as toxicology results, what were the drugs found in her system? She had uh, was described as a possibly fatal level of Xanax in her blood. Uda could have been incapacitated, like, you know, delirious from the Xanax and could have cut herself and she could have left the blood everywhere. Is that the alternate scenario? Yes. Did you believe that was possible? Well, anything's possible. Anything's possible. Faced with unusual and conflicting evidence, detectives interview a number of Uda's family and friends. The case takes an unsettling turn when they speak to her ex-husband, a doctor named John Wall. Do you recall how he reacted to the news of his ex-wife's death? The reporting detectives sat across the table from John Wall. We're talking about Uta, okay? She was found dead tonight. Uta was right here? Uta, German. Johnny Wall's reply was, Uta with the red hair? It's like... He didn't even know her, or didn't know which Uta this could possibly be. That seemed totally inappropriate. It's not a common name, either. No, it's not. And then later on in the interview, they took a more hard line with him. When's the last time you texted Uta? I don't know. When's the last time you called her? I, I don't know. You don't know a whole lot of shit, do well, you? I don't know. They became confrontational, and they pressed him to, you know, elicit responses from him. You want me to tell you why you don't know a whole lot of shit? It's because you don't want to remember. You think this is our first fucking rodeo? We're in here all the time, and I'll tell you what, this is the reason why you don't want to remember. This is the reason. You ready for me to tell you? You want me to tell you? The reason why you don't the reason why you don't want to remember is because you killed her. You took her life. Yes, you did not. You took your children's mother's life. How can you say that? You did it! That is not true. You absolutely did it! Absolutely not true. We will prove it. I wasn't I don't think I was there. I don't think I was there. Well, I'll tell you How what. How do I know? If I didn't commit a crime, I would sure know as hell I was there or not. I don't know where the fuck I was. He finally said he didn't know where he was that night. What did he provide as a reason for that? No reason at all. And did he have any injuries? Yes, he did. Let's talk about those scratches for a minute, okay? We need to get this cleared up. Do you want me to take my glasses off? Sure. All right. One thing that was very noticeable from the time they picked him up is in his left eye, he had received a severe injury to his eye. And also he had scratches on his face. 
and on his forearm. The two detectives that interrogated him that night, they felt very positively that he was guilty. So after Johnny returned home, did anything unusual happen? Yes. He gathered his children around him in his bed, in his bedroom. He told them that their mother was dead, and the police thought he might have done it. The children became very scared and very distraught. They called a friend of the family who was a psychiatric nurse. She went up to talk to him, and they had some conversation. And it was very odd, because he kept his face to the wall. And uh, after she talked to him and warmed him up a little bit, he turned around, and she notices horrible blood inside of his eye and the scratches on his face. And she asked him, did he do it? And Johnny replied, I don't know, which was like very scary for this woman who was there by herself, you know, with Johnny. And she made arrangements to check him into uni, which is a psychiatric facility. And uh, they took him from his house and they checked him into uni. With his prime suspect checked into a psychiatric facility, Detective Parks searches for more clues. Investigators examine Uta's fingernails for DNA. So as far as the DNA is concerned, that was located under Uta's fingernails, is there anything about the DNA which makes that evidence difficult to make determinations with? Yes, the DNA from her fingernails is problematic. It only had, I think, five, five markers out of a possible of 26. So it's, you can't use that DNA and say, absolutely, this is the guy that left this DNA under her fingernails. You could not present that in a court of law as a unique identifier of John Wall as the killer of Uta von Schwedler. Despite his now strong conviction that Dr. John Wall murdered his ex-wife, Detective Parks can't prove it. The evidence at the scene is circumstantial at best, exculpatory at worst. Perhaps the only way he can convince a jury that Uda was murdered is through the blood evidence. And that evidence would soon be hotly contested by experts. Here's blood expert Anita Zanin. In your opinion, did the bloodstained evidence show beyond a reasonable doubt that John killed Uta? No. In fact, the bloodstain evidence didn't indicate that anyone killed Uta. In November of 2012, more than a year after Uta von Schwedler's death, no arrests had been made in her case. For Detective Parks, it's a maddening delay in what he now believes is a clear-cut homicide. What was that like? Frustrating. It's frustrating and very concerning because if John Wall did uh, murder his ex-wife, you know, those four young children are still living in the house with him. So we could potentially have these four children at risk from their own father. But this case kind of got left by the wayside. And wh why is that? Because if we go into a trial, we'll present all the reasons why we think this is a homicide. And then the defense will get up and they will present all the reasons why it's not a homicide. And you can only get to try people once. You just have one shot at it. And if you lose them, they're free forever. 
in this case. We had a bunch of blood stains that didn't really make any sense. Some of them we couldn't identify. Some of them were confusing to, to me, at least. Was there a blood spatter expert hired to conduct analyses on the blood evidence? Yes. And who was that? That was Rod Englert. Rod Englert. If that name rings a bell, that's because it's the very same blood expert whose testimony helped Indiana prosecutors convict David Cam, who you heard about in our last episode. Detective Parks would turn to Englert in April of 2013 to help make sense of the scene at Uda's house. Are you mainly called into, into play by the defense or the prosecution? Both. Uh, what I always say to either side is that I will analyze your case, but you may not like the outcome because you're going to get it straight the way it is. In this particular case, thought it could be either way, a homicide or a suicide. Initially, nobody knew. That's when we got called into Salt Lake City. So you're able to go to the scene. We look at the scene. We let the scene talk to us. We measure. We walk. I remember walking in the wall case, how many steps it was from the refrigerator to the door, how many steps it was from the kitchen to the bathroom, how many steps. And you get a perspective that I can take and explain that to the jurors. That's the key in this whole thing, is 12 people. And every time we go into a scene, guess who's sitting on our shoulder? The jurors. Because you're thinking ahead. You're thinking just like the prosecutor, he or she's doing their closing argument before they even start the trial. What were the things that stood out in the John Wall case that, that where you came to your conclusions about what happened? What stood out was she had incised wounds on the left forearm and the left leg that were bleeding. Is suicide possible and someone cuts their leg and then cuts the distal side of the arm? Sure, it's possible, but it's just highly, highly unlikely. For instance, one of the arm, the, the wound. It had a cut that was atypical. It was almost like cutting in and carving. I mean, that's nuts. It doesn't fit the scenario of someone trying to take their own life by cutting themselves. And uh, the bedroom was obviously where a fight started. I've never seen a suicide ever with all of this, uh, uh, this chaos that had occurred. There was chaos there. So how much can blood actually tell us? The blood states that the struggle between Uda and her attacker, in this case, Dr. Wall, got out of hand, and Dr. Wall was not able to control her. And in the process, she got cut twice on the left arm, which is a defensive wound, and that she was on the bed, and that her left leg was lifted defensively, trying to kick off or try to ward off her attacker. And she got those atypical type of cuts on her left side. And the blood is transferred then around the bed, swiped from her body from the wounds. And then she gets those eight steps into the bathroom. And when she gets into the bathroom, that's where she's, she fights in there. She's down, her top comes off. She rallies, she gets up, she's trying to get out. She puts her hand, right hand on the sink, her left hand up on a windowsill. And then she's then controlled again and pushed down into the bathtub and is drowned. She's murdered. She wasn't the victim of a suicide. She's the victim of a murder.
Okay, so I'm confused because Englert's supposed to be a blood pattern analyst, but he hasn't said one thing about the shape of a blood stain, the shape of a blood smear. He's literally getting into the minutia of how he thinks the crime unfolded. He's saying things that you couldn't possibly know from looking at blood spatter. He's literally coming up with a blow-by-blow unfolding of how he thinks this crime happened. And it's things you couldn't possibly know from looking at blood stains. Yeah, you know, it's... Dr. Wall got out of hand and tried to control her and she rallies and gets up and he's trying to paint this picture. And you can tell why that would probably be really influential to a jury versus some guy that's just talking about the minutia of blood spatter, which is what he's supposed to be there for. Right. It's a lot more interesting than looking at the shape of a blood spot or a smear or a transfer pattern and trying to just talk about the physics of that out of the expertise. John Wall's guilt has nothing to do with what we're saying about Englert's opinion here. In April of 2013, over a year and a half after the death of Uta von Schwendler, Dr. John Wall is arrested for murder. The findings of blood expert Rod Englert give credence to Detective Park's theory of the crime. How do you think this murder may have been carried out My theory is Mr. Wall went there early in the morning. He surprised Uta in her bed, and then he got the Xanax inside of her. The exact mechanism that it was applied, we don't know. Also, she had that bruising on her lower lip. That might be indication that a cup was pressed to her lower lip and she was forced to to drink it. Anyway, he got the Xanax inside of her, but she fought, she fought back pretty substantially. The poisoning that he had planned didn't quite work out and he had to dispose of her quickly. He dragged her to the bathroom, got her into the bathtub, ran the cold water, and held her under the cold water until she died. In your opinion, did it seem as though other aspects of the crime scene were staged? Yes, I believe that there was a staged crime scene. The killer was trying to do everything he can to make it appear that she was emotionally distraught and throwing her child's photo album in the bathtub with her could make it appear that she was reminiscing or feeling sorrowful over that child. As far as Engler, do you feel as though his testimony would be particularly important in this case? Yes, absolutely. Just because the police are very much lay people when it comes to forensics and the experts have spent years of their lives studying these issues and these subjects, and and they know things that we just don't. At Dr. Wall's trial, Englert would present his findings to the jury. When the prosecution rested, defense lawyers would counter by calling their own blood pattern analyst to the stand, Anita Zanin. How did the John Wall case come to your attention initially? I was contacted by his defense attorney, who gave me a synopsis of the case, how Uta was found, the wounds she had, as well as the fact that um, the prosecution had a bloodstain pattern analyst uh, examine some evidence and review the case, and he wanted me to review that as well. So I looked at the photographs and the documentation for the entire house. There definitely were some problems with contamination. We can see in the photographs that notebooks are on the bed and discarded gloves on the bed and things like that. 
It was documented that one of the police officers stepped on the bed in order to get a better look at bloodstains on the other side of the bed. Those things are all problematic and, and you know, potential sources for contamination. What were your initial impressions about what we were dealing with at the scene of Uda's death? Well, it became clear to me that all of the, the stains there were, were passive in nature, which means it was simply dripping by gravity alone. There is no spatter and no cast off. There didn't appear to be a violent struggle that you often see when there's more than one person involved. There were blood stains on the bedding itself. We can't know the original position of the bedding when this incident occurred. The only conclusion that we can make is that there was some movement on the bed. Uh, that's it. We can't know the events or the length of time this took. Bloodstains cannot give you an indication of someone's level of consciousness. Also, the trail of bloodstains to the bathroom is unaltered, which to me is significant in that if there were more than one person, we might expect them to be disrupted. And what about the wall? because there were smears of blood on the wall. The bathroom wall? Yes. The transfer stains on the sink and wall, again, simply indicate movement, which is consistent with somebody lowering themselves into the bathtub. The blood stains alone are insufficient to determine if more than one person was present. There's no indication that there was anything violent going on. There was no impact spatter. When we see people rolling around on the floor, we see different types of patterns that we just don't see here. Do you believe John killed Uta? Why or why not? So my job is not to determine guilt or innocence. That's really all I can say about that is that that's not my determination to make. But the bloodstain evidence didn't indicate that anyone killed Uta. Rod Englert and Anita Zanin clearly disagree about just what and how much can be gleaned from the blood at Uda's house. And frankly, both of their opinions are pretty compelling. So it really comes down to which one of them would the jury believe and why? Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. 
J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. In February of 2015, Jurors in the murder trial of Dr. John Wall listen intently as experts debate the blood evidence at the scene. We are wondering, how does one make a decision in a situation like that? So we connected with Cameron Sharp, the jury foreman from the trial of John Wall, and put that question to him. How did the prosecution present the case to you? Explain to me just sort of like their, uh, uh, what their process was. I think in the beginning they made their initial case, which took a few hours, um, at least just laying out the evidence, showing you the crime scene, the body, kind of explaining the situation as they saw it, and then tried to add on to that story with expert witnesses. So do you remember the first w- expert witness they called? Rod. Rod is Rod Englert, the blood pattern expert hired by the state. What were they doing with Rod? So Rod came up. Um, once they got his credentials out of the way, Rod spent some time going over the crime scene. What I found fascinating was he also showed other uh, murder scenes. For example, if you swing a, a bludgeon somebody with an axe, he shows you how the blood will travel in certain directions and how it splatters so that you can determine what kind of weapon might be used <clears throat> in a particular crime scene. From what Alexis and I have learned, It's this style of presentation that has made Rod Englert a successful and sought-after expert. Juries love it because it makes for a visually arresting lesson on forensics. Of course, it does feel like something that the defense should object to, but in this case, they didn't. So what did he say? With this particular crime scene, you know, he he showed us the blood on the bed and on the floor, different places in the room and in the bathroom, and then he made his case of where that blood might have came from where to me it just looked like blood. Rod showed where the the blood potentially is telling a story. And then in addition to that, he took out a a big whiteboard. He had some fake blood. And then he actually had a demonstration right there in front of the jury. He had a glove, poured blood on it, smeared it, hair on a wig, smeared it. And so he gave us a, a real life example of what that would look like and how to read the blood, so to speak. You're in a trial, it's a very staid atmosphere. Then this guy comes in with pictures of other crime scenes. He's talking about axes and and bludgeoning and things like that. Would you say it was, for lack of a better term, entertaining? I wouldn't say it was entertaining uh, just due to the nature of the gravity of the situation that we were in, but it was was fascinating. It was information I didn't know about. I feel like I learned something about uh, his presentation. Um, entertaining, no, but knowledgeable, yes. Fascinating, yes. Now, when he had said, 
gone through this after he was done what were your thoughts as you you know as he as he stepped off the stand so i i think with Rod, for me, it just opened up my eyes to a whole different way of looking at the crime scene that I otherwise maybe would not have. He believed, in, in his theory, he presented that the blood was telling a story that there was a struggle. But then, John Wall's defense attorneys had their opportunity to put a blood expert on the stand. And the jury heard something very different. So when um, Anita, uh, the, the defense blood spatter expert, got on the stand, what did she say happened? So what she said was happened was that uh, Uta tried to kill herself, uh, commit suicide by taking her own uh, Xanax, trying to cut herself to commit suicide, probably became sedated a little bit and then went to the bathroom and finished the job by drowning herself. A quick but important fact check here. Anita did not offer a narrative about what happened to Uta in her testimony. The juror Cameron, is most likely recalling testimony given by a pathologist called to testify for the defense. On the contrary, Anita simply stated that there was nothing inconsistent about the bloodstains with Uta having been alone and under the influence. So when you're listening to those two scenarios, which one was sounding more plausible to you? Rods. Why? I think that for me, it was the way that you have the crime scene laid out and the way that he walks you through that. The other blood spatter expert, she used some, some vocabulary words that some of us didn't know. She used the word tangential and said that this was a tangential wound. And we all, I think when we got to the room, kind of like, what's tangential mean? But you know, they kind of their, her whole point was trying to just explain different scenarios that those wounds could have gotten there. And to me though, it still didn't make a whole lot of sense. Once again, Cameron is mistakenly recalling here the testimony of the pathologist, not Anita Zanin. I mean, at, at some point where you're thinking like, wow, we, we've got two scientists that are both credentialed, they're giving us something, and now it's up to us to figure out who's telling the truth. Yes, in a sense. It is a little weird that they look at the same crime scene, both experts in the same field, and they're both seeing it completely different. It kind of makes it tough because they're trying to cancel each other out, and one's suicide, one's homicide. However, you've got to pick one or the other, and I think it's all based on how they present their their information, their expertise, their science, and their credentials, and then being able to really tell that story from the blood. Do I feel like one did better than the other? Yes. I think with Rod, I felt like it just, it was a little bit more of a cohesive presentation of the bringing it all together. The other one, not, not so much. After deliberating for about five hours, the jury would return with a verdict. Dr. John Wall is found guilty of murdering Uta von Schwedler and sentenced to 15 years to life in prison. For Detective Corden Parks, it's a long-awaited moment of vindication. Do you feel as though Johnny Wall is where he belongs? Yes, I do. And do you think, ultimately, forensic experts played a significant role in this case? Absolutely. The pathologists and uh, Rod Angler were were crucial to the case. And without them, what could have happened? He could have been found not guilty or maybe not even charged at all. Dr. John Wall remains in prison to this day, and we're not advocating for his guilt or his innocence, but we are questioning the process that got him there. Because when you hear expert and science, you think you're gonna be presented with objective facts. But when you have dueling experts, 
the fate of the verdict instead rests on who the jury decides to believe. And that gets extremely subjective. Okay, so John Wall is found guilty. He goes to prison. He's guilty in a court of law that's not really up for debate, and we're not trying to argue otherwise. But let's look at how we got there, because what happened with Englert's testimony could just as easily happen to an innocent person. Is that alarming? Absolutely, because here's the thing. He seemed to push the jury over the top, and that was incredibly subjective, because you have these two blood experts on the stand, and they have two different styles. And they're saying two completely different things, and the jury is just making a decision based on whose story they like better. And we have Cameron who said that Rod's presentation made more sense, but that is strictly because, in my opinion, Rod went outside the bounds of analyzing the blood patterns. Like Anita, Anita's observations and Anita's conclusions were conservative because there is only so much that you can tell from blood stains and blood patterns. But Rod Englert filled in all of the blanks So imagine you're a juror, you're sitting there, it's hot, it's stuffy, and somebody starts doing an incredibly dramatic presentation. You're going to sit up, you're going to take notice, and that's what happened. It's no wonder why they would respond to this presentation, because it was easy to follow, and it told the whole story as opposed to part of the story. But as far as the science goes, science should be factual and not so open to interpretation. Right. And I think what we need to understand about people in general is that they want someone to fill in the blanks. They don't want these looming questions left. And Englert was willing to do that, where Anita took a more conservative approach in her opinion. And I think that wasn't enough for the jury. We asked both Rod and Anita what they thought of this odd system in American courts. The system of dueling experts. Honestly, it's a question that I've rarely thought about until like we started doing this case. But if I'm a juror and I'm looking at it going, wait a minute, who do I believe? The science is the science. I I don't know. I don't know. You know, you have to talk to the jurors, but you let the evidence do the talking and you have to be able to interpret it. And that interpretation is where it can be misleading sometime if you really don't understand it, if you haven't been to a lot of scenes. And that's my point. I've been to thousands of scenes. What is it that makes you so good at connecting with a jury? You in particular. What do you do that that the other people don't do that makes you connect with a jury? You know, I really don't know how to answer that. I just, I just, I, I, I feel, I have a lot of confidence when I go in with a case. If I don't have that confidence, I won't go. When we see dueling experts in a courtroom, how is the jury supposed to decide who to take at face value? Right, that's a good question. And sometimes they don't know who to believe. And and I've had juries that have said, we didn't know who to believe, so we just didn't consider that evidence. And, And that's, again, one of the reasons that I don't necessarily push to testify. If there's an opposing expert, I push them to try and get what they need from them on cross-exam instead of putting me up if they can. Because I think that it's more effective. Anita makes a strong point. Rather than put the juries in a position to decide between two opposing experts, attorneys should take the opportunity under cross-examination to question an expert's credentials, as well as the error rates, reliability, and limitations to the forensic field. 
Regardless of experts like Rod Englert and Anita Zanin's sincere efforts to portray the blood evidence in the most honest way possible, the fact remains, our court system is full of dueling experts. If one side presents expert findings, you can be sure the other side will counter them with their own expert. That's a problem, because the facts should be the facts. And there's something else David Cam said that would be even scarier if it were also true. These experts, they don't have the training, they don't have the experience, and the requirements to put a person in that position to get involved in a case, analyze evidence, and then give sworn trial testimony is very minimal, and um, there's very little oversight. Could the bar to be an expert really be so low? Let's put it this way. Where the story goes next, you're not going to believe. Next on Unraveled, Experts on Trial. There was no evidence to point to anything else but a suicide. But there were some blood stains on that robe. It's not like um, DNA or fingerprints. There's so many different possibilities. The law of physics would have had to have been suspended so that the blood could loop and dive and wave. You're dealing with people's lives here. I mean, you want to convict the guilty, but you don't want to convict the innocent. Unraveled is produced by Joke Productions for ID. The executive producers of this podcast are Joke Finciun, Biagio Messina, and Jeff Kuntz, along with myself, Billy Jensen, and Alexis Linkletter. Executive producer for ID is Tim Bainey. Additional producing and writing by Mike Gattinella. Our editor is Corey Nye. The music and score that you have heard in this podcast is by Biagio Messina, Dave Pellman, and the Alibi and Nimbo Libraries. Make sure to check for episode three next week on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. It helps a lot when you subscribe, rate, and review the podcast that you enjoy listening to. Thank you for listening and for your support. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 
luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.